City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. About five years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And uh, an organization that takes pastors to Israel had invited me and they were very selective. You had to apply to a bunch of different things because you um, only had to pay $500 when you went. It was an incredible deal. And, uh, and so I got invited. I was invited relatively late. It was about four or five weeks before the trip. I remember they told me that I needed to be in L.A., and I lived in Las Vegas at the time. I needed to be in L.A. by um, January 10th, and so uh, because we were flying from L.A. to Tel Aviv on January 11th, and so... I got to L.A., and um, we had this uh, kind of beginning, opening dinner that night. And so we gathered in the hotel room, and I realized one thing. One, that it seemed like almost everybody knew each other. Um, everybody was familiar with each other. It seemed like they uh, operated in the same circles. And, but that was fine. I was thrilled to just even be going to Israel. And so um, I remember we gathered, and they said a couple things that first night that I didn't think anything of at the time, but I thought something of later. They said, um, you know, and I don't think Steve's going to be able to come. He just had to drop out last minute. I didn't know who Steve was. It seemed like they did. And they said, um, but we're either going to go a man short or um, we're going to see if Mary can drive up and she can go with us. And uh, everyone also seemed to know who Mary was. I didn't. Again, it didn't seem important in the moment. And so anyway, we gather um, the next day, January 11th. We get in the hotel, just a quick huddle. And, um, and Mary was there. They said Mary made it, and so we all greeted Mary. It was about a 70-year-old lady. And so we fly from L.A. to Tel Aviv, which um, crossed all kinds of time zones. And um, by the time we landed, I don't know what time it was in me, but it was time for dinner in Israel. And all I wanted to do was go to sleep. Um, it was all, I mean, jet lag was not great. And um, I remember debating if I was even going to go to dinner but I figured that I would not put the best foot forward if I didn't. So I forced myself to be social. I went to dinner. And again, everybody knows each other. Everybody is about 30 or 40 years older than me. I'm by far the youngest person there. And so I grab my plate in the hotel restaurant and I go to look for a seat. And elementary school lunches like flash back at me. And like all the cool kids like had tables. And I'm trying to figure out where do I fit in. And anyway, I saw finally a table that had four seats. Um, three of them were taken by a married couple that I had talked to before, and so they felt safe. And then the new lady that got added to the trip uh, most recently, Mary, was there. And so I went and sat down and forced social interaction. And the next 30 minutes of this dinner conversation were some of the most bizarre interactions I've ever had in my life. I, um, I was listening. I was mostly listening. I wasn't doing a whole lot of talking, and I was listening as the three of them talked about different things. Specifically, they were talking about their ministries. And uh, one of the things that Mary said that didn't seem strange, she said, you know, we, she didn't lead a church, she led a nonprofit, and she said, we're having a really hard time fundraising for our ministry, which is not an abnormal conversation in ministry circles. And then right at, it's almost in the same breath, she said, and, uh, but we did get back a few weeks ago from this two-week-long, top-of-the-line Mediterranean cruise. We went everywhere there. It was unbelievable. We took our whole family. It was amazing. And, and I'm not opposed to ministry leaders or pastors having nice things. Um, I don't think you have to be poor to be in ministry. But it was very strange to hear the juxtaposition of what she said and then what she revealed. 
Anyway, they didn't seem to think anything of it, so I went on. And uh, she started talking about 10 minutes later about another challenge she was having, a challenge of all the different kinds of personalities that were clashing in her nonprofit. Now, that's not strange in ministry circles either. But what was strange was she said that the problems she's having are exacerbated because she's constantly traveling. She just got back from Paris, and then she's here, and now after this, she's going to Singapore. And what she said, she said, I just got back from Paris, and she said where she was, she was at a high-energy American pop concert. And she said, I'm going to the same concert again in Singapore as soon as I get back. And I'm sitting there, and I know I'm jet-lagged, but I'm like, this, this doesn't make any sense. She's talking about some, like a contemporary that I listen to. And, um, and what was even more strange is the married couple that knew her from before this thought nothing of it. And so I sat there, and I had one big question running through my mind. I kept thinking to myself, who is this woman? I mean, the things she was saying were really, really strange. The things she was revealing about herself and some of her life and what seemed to be a, a unique family situation was really strange. I kept asking the question, who is this woman? And, uh, and we've all been in situations like this, I'm sure, before. Maybe not in a foreign country with a strange woman, but we've all been genuinely confused. We've all had, like, questions start to come up, and, and curiosity starts to cause us to ask questions. We've all been genuinely curious about something that's going on around us, and typically what you're interested in leads to the kind of questions that you ask. So if you love to cook, you're a chef, you might typically ask someone, what's your favorite dish? If you love to travel, what's the favorite place that you've ever been to? If you love sports, what's your favorite team? If you're me, what's your favorite Fast and Furious movie? We all have genuine questions that we ask, and usually they're surface level, and then sometimes we're forced to answer some bigger questions, some deeper questions like, who am I? Or what am I doing here? Or what's the point? Sometimes we get to moments where we have to ask bigger questions, and Jesus had a friend named John, John followed him around for about three and a half years, and John wrote a biography about Jesus' life, and I love the way that John writes. If you read his biography, or we call it a gospel, um, I love the way that he writes because he always presents certain things, like Jesus went here and he was questioned by these people. And instead of at the end, John telling you what to think, I love that John almost seems to do this every time. It's almost like he looks at you and says, so what do you think? Who do you think that this man is? G John doesn't tell you what to believe about Jesus, but it's almost like when you're reading his account, he looks at you and says, who do you think that this man is? Now, not every question needs an answer, but John would say this would be one of those questions that probably does. Who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this man that never wrote a book, yet more books have been written about in the history of the world? Who is this man that never posed for a picture, yet his image is the focus of more art than any art that's been displayed? Who is this man that only lived 33 years, yet his life is what divides how we keep track of history? Who is this man? Who is this man who is far from royalty, yet millions and millions have bowed the knee to him? Who is this man that never went to college, yet his teachings are the most influential to be found anywhere on planet Earth? Who is this man? Now, of course, you're in church, so the answer is Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's always going to be Jesus. But there is a deeper question below just who is this man. I think John would almost ask us this, like, so what do you think? 
Who do you think he is? Who is this man to you? And uh, if you're new here um, to City Church, welcome. Uh, Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be exploring this topic through seven different ways. There were seven big statements that Jesus made about himself. They were somewhat clear. They all started with I am. So he he wasn't trying to cloud it. But then there's context around them that is so, so interesting. And so the next seven weeks, we're going to be digging into who is this man. And what's unique, if you're new here, we're going to be talking about it in this room, in the rooms across the hall in Kid City, and we're going to be talking about it in our house groups. And again, if you're new and you're trying to figure out if this is a church for you or a community for you, um, I should give you a disclaimer. We try to do church a little bit differently. Uh, We say, um, and this is just a shameless plug, we say that we are a church with two front doors. We love Sunday mornings. We love what happens here. We put a lot of effort into this place, and we think that really the rubber hits the road Monday through Saturday. So what happens in this room is important, and what happens in living rooms all across the city are equally important. So if you're new and you're trying to figure out, like, is this a place for me, or I would like to know a little bit more about Jesus, the best way is not just to keep showing up here on Sunday, although that is good. It's uh, to get connected into a house group. And so we'll have staff and different people at the connect table after service. If you're interested in becoming part of this family, that is the best way. We're shamelessly a church that says we have two front doors. It's the best thing that we have to offer. And so that's what we're exploring. Who is this man? And then second question, the deeper question, what do you think? What do you think about him? What does this mean for your life? Uh, He said seven statements. The first one that we're going to study is in John 11. The first hint is actually what Violet just read to us when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus is saying that in the midst of having a conversation with two sisters that have just lost their brother, Mary and Martha. And if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard of Mary and Martha. Maybe you got asked as a child, are you a Mary or a Martha? Uh, Maybe your Sunday school teacher told you that you're a Martha. That's not a good thing. But even if they told you that you're a Mary, they might have just been calling you lazy. I don't know. So we're not going to talk about that story. But Mary and Martha are these two popular sisters in the Bible. But I think the biggest story that happens to them is when they lose their brother and Jesus comes to their hometown, to Bethany. The problem is he came four days after Lazarus was dead. And so we'll pick up when Jesus is having this conversation with Martha. And Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again at the last day. The resurrection at the last day. He'll rise again. He'll rise again later. And what John is doing here is he's showing us the theme kind of woven through here. Life versus death. Life versus death. And he keeps weaving this idea of life versus death. And what Martha's doing here isn't um, necessarily something we would understand on the surface. What Martha's doing here is she's making a theological statement, or she's actually aligning with a theological party. Back then, there were two big schools of thought, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you've probably heard of them if you've read any about Jesus, and they're usually depicted as, like, not great people. But the Pharisees, they believed that there was going to be a resurrection later, That life would happen again. There is life after death. And the Sadducees said, no, no, that's not what's going to happen. After death, there's nothing. There is no resurrection. And so that's what divided them. And um, this is is tough to explain. I'll do my best. You'll have to use your imagination. But back then, and if you need to close your eyes, you can't. Back then, religious people used to disagree. (laughs) 
I know, I know. And praise God, it hasn't happened since. <laughs> but this thought on the resurrection is what divided the Pharisees who said, yes, resurrection. The Sadducees said, no, no resurrection. And Martha, what she's doing is she's making a statement. She's taking a side. She says, yeah, I actually agree with the Pharisees. I believe that there will be a resurrection again later. I believe that I will see my brother again later. Well, Jesus ends up calling for Mary. Mary comes running. And when Mary had reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, exact same statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And most scholars agree that's the correct translation, but it doesn't hit quite as hard as what it says in English. Deeply troubled in spirit, the, the word that's used there is actually a Greek word to describe what a horse does, like a snorting noise. It's almost like Jesus snorted with anger at the view of his creation suffering from death and the death of one of his friends. Jesus hates death. Jesus hates death. Jesus doesn't celebrate any kind of death in your life. If there's been any kind of emotional or physical death, Jesus isn't up there on his throne saying, well, they had it coming. Jesus snorts over death. He weeps over death. He curses the author of death. And this death moves him to action. Now, again, John's not going to tell us what to think. John's just going to ask a big question. The questions he's asking is, who is this man? Who is this man that seems so obsessed with life? Who is this man that keeps talking about life? And all of this is taking place in Bethany, which is just a couple miles away from Jerusalem, just a couple miles from where I was having dinner with Mary that night. And the dinner kept going on, and they kept talking about things. But there was that moment when Mary, and again, I'm so jet-lagged, and I'm like, maybe you're hearing things. But Mary said this. She said, yeah, it's, it's going to be a whirlwind. When I get home from this, I'm flying to Singapore so that I can go to the Katy Perry concert. It's a 70-year-old lady. And, and, and there's no way. I mean, there's very little chance that she's a Katy Perry fan. I mean, Katy Perry is who, like, I listen to on high school spring breaks. Like, this, there's no way that this is the song of her generation. And she said, yeah, I can't wait. And, and that's where I just got back from. I just got back from Paris. I went to the Katy Perry concert. And I let an awkward amount of time pass because I was just over and over again saying, okay, is that really what she Did she say Katy Perry? Katy, someone else? And finally... About two minutes later, they're talking about something else. I said, um, I'm sorry, Mary. She was to my left. She said, I'm sorry, Mary. Did, did you say the Katy Perry concert? And Mary didn't get me much to work with. She said, yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Um, and I did, I, I had the courage. I said, I, I'm sorry. Why? <laughs> and as nonchalant as she could, she said, oh. Katie's my daughter. Right. And I can't prove this, but I felt like every eye in Israel was on me. <laughs> and it all made sense. When they talked about her back in L.A., everybody knew who she was. When they talked about her when we got to Tel Aviv, everybody knew who she was, everybody except one person. And so then um, it happened to be the contemporary of Katy Perry, and so she says, that's my daughter, and every eye in Israel, but especially the eye of the married couple was on me to my right, but don't worry, your boy played it cool. <laughs> she said that, and I, I was like, oh, cool, 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 
And I sat there for the minimum amount of time that I needed to until I excused myself, said I was tired, and then casually walked out of the restaurant until no one could see me and sprinted to my hotel room, grabbed my phone out of the drawer, connected to the hotel Wi-Fi, and texted every person I knew. (laughs) I'm in Israel with Katy Perry's mom. It gets better. There was a loophole that everybody else, all these other pastors had figured out. You were only allowed to bring one person from your church. So I couldn't bring Catherine, um, but everybody else there had two campuses at their church. So everybody else brought their spouse or their associate pastor or their worship pastor. Everybody except the new young guy with the new young church and the woman that got added late. So when they sent us out and said, hey, you have to be with partners, guess who got paired together? (laughs) And they wanted to keep her safe, so they wanted to put Mary with a big, strong man, but he... He was taken, so I was with Mary, and I got to tour all over Israel with Katy Perry's mom. Has anybody been to Israel? Raise your hand if you've been to Israel. Okay, that's a lot. Did you go to the Garden of Gethsemane? Isn't that super cool? I helped Katy Perry's mom down the stairs there. <laughs> did, you, um, did you get to go to, um, did you get to, go to the, the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, I, I helped her as she got into the water to get baptized. Did you go to the worship? Did you worship in the upper room? Because that was one of the most powerful moments for me. I went to the upper room if you've been there. I worshiped next to the voice that sang Katy Perry to sleep. <laughs> when you went to Israel, did, raise your hand. Did you go to the Dead Sea? You went to, yeah. It's super cool. You can float in it. It's amazing. I floated in the Dead Sea just like this while the life giver of Katy Perry held my phone and took pictures of me. I'm not making this up, and I'm not, I'm honestly, I'm not trying to brag. Yeah, I am. And, uh, and I'm sorry, but you have not lived. You have not lived until you have hiked the ancient rocks of biblical times while simultaneously getting the dirt on John Mayer. That's my trip to Israel. And all this is happening a couple miles away from Bethany, and they go to the tomb, and Jesus said, take away the stone. But Martha, who's, of course, always practical, Martha said, uh, by this time, there is a bad odor, for it has been, he has been there for four days, and four days is important. Four days in ancient rabbinic tradition is when you are officially declared dead. They always would have somebody go back earlier in the week and make sure that um, the dead person was actually dead, not sleeping. And I want you to imagine how they had to come up with that rule. They put a lot of sleeping people in tombs for them to say, hey, we should go check on them. But by the fourth day, you were officially declared dead. And so there's some significance here when Martha says, look, he's not asleep. There's not any hope that, like, this was an accident. And actually, by now, it's going to be quite uncomfortable. And, and Jesus says, no, take away the stone. And this is finally when we start to get some clarity over what J- Jesus has been hinting at. See, Jesus has been hinting at some kind of life, and we have assumed, and Martha had assumed, and Mary had assumed that life is coming later, but Jesus was saying, no, 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 there's going to be life now. He's not just talking about life later, he's talking about life now, and life after death is true, but it's not always motivating. That's my story. Growing up, I was motivated by life after death. I grew up in the church, and and I loved Jesus, and I had a good foundation. But I loved Jesus because I knew he was going to be the one that kept me from hell. And that was my motivation, to make sure that I didn't go to hell. And finally, high school broke my will. 
I mean, it's hard to stay motivated for something in the future, and it's hard to stay motivated to avoid something rather than receive something. And so finally, high school broke my will, and I determined that I was just going to go have fun because it seemed like everybody else was having more fun now. And even though Jesus offered me life later, he was sort of ruining my life now. And so I lived for the now, and I lived for the fun, and it was great, and went to college. And, and some of you have heard this story before, but everything changed for me when I got a phone call. I got a phone call. Um, well, first I had a, a, an interaction with one of my friends. It was a sorority sister of Catherine's. She was dating my roommate also, um, the other girl, not Catherine. <laughs> he would have been kicked out. But Alexa, this girl, she uh, sat all of our roommates down one day, and she said, hey, um, she's 19. She was 19, and she said, um, hey, I've been diagnosed with leukemia. I've been given three months to live, and uh, I'm going for my eighth chemo treatment in a few days, um, but all seven haven't worked, so this, this is it. And, uh, and I didn't know if God still did stuff. I knew that God was going to do stuff in the future when he came back, and I knew that he did stuff back in the beginning when he wrote the book, but I didn't know if God still did stuff now, so I called together some people, and we prayed, and I'm still kind of living for the now, but I'm also praying for something to happen, and the prayer meeting dismissed, it was good, and um, a few days later, it was Thanksgiving break, so I went to my parents' house for Thanksgiving, and Alexa called me, it was three days after we prayed for her, and she called me, and I remember I left the family room, and I went back to my childhood bedroom, and I was standing at the left side of the bed when I took the call, the call that has changed my life, and Alexa said, um, Chris, I, I, I don't know how to say this, she said, the leukemia is gone. What? She said, the cancer is gone. She said, they've run the tests numerous times. There is nothing there. Nothing. And I'm listening to her, and I'm starting to believe her. And I remember thinking this, and I've shared this before. I remember thinking, this is strange. Because I'm living for the most fun now. But what's interesting is this Jesus moment feels different. This Jesus moment is also the most fun I've ever had in my life. More fun than any party, any relationship. This Jesus moment that I'm having right now is the most fun I've ever had. And Alexa starts to tell me the details of what's happening. But as she's telling me the details, I'm having an inner monologue with myself as I'm on the phone with her. I'm asking the question that John's been asking this whole morning. Who is this man? Who is this man that can do this? And do I have the life that he offers? Do I have this life? Because whatever I'm feeling now, this feels different than anything I've ever felt before. Do I have this life? And so Jesus called in a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And I imagine in that moment, Mary and Martha looked at each other and they sighed a collective, oh, that's what he was talking about. That's what he... He wasn't just talking about a resurrection later. He wasn't just talking about life later. He was talking about resurrection now. He was talking about the fullness of life now. He wasn't just talking about fullness later. He was talking about fullness now. He wasn't just talking about abundance later. He was talking about abundance now. I didn't understand what he was saying before. When he said I was the resurrection and the life, I thought he meant later. But they understood that it wasn't just about life after death later. He's the resurrection and the life now. And then it's almost like John would look at you again and look at you as the reader or look at me and, and he would say, what do you think? Who do you think that this man is? What are you going to do about what you've just read? And we know this, but the, the Lazarus resurrection, although true, really was sort of just the warm-up. 
it was a prophetic hint. It was a taste. It was um, a foreshadowing of what was to come. Because just a few months later, just down the hill from Bethany, Jesus was crucified and died the most gruesome death imaginable. And he was laid in a tomb on that Friday night. And what happened next, nobody was expecting. I can't stress how nobody was expecting what was about to happen. John makes it clear. John had no idea what was coming. Peter didn't think that this was going to happen. Honestly, Mary wasn't even looking for this to happen. The Romans definitely didn't see it coming. The Pharisees and Sadducees, of course, they had no idea what was about to happen. But John records this. And when you read the Bible, don't turn your brain off. Let's really critique this. Are we sure John saw what he saw? Or is he just making something up? Are we sure we can trust what John is saying? I mean, John was there. That's historically proven. But maybe he made it up. And so let's read what John says. And and let's take a critical eye. Let's make sure that this is for real. Because it says early on the first day, John said that while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. This is a little nickname John gives himself. If I'm going to make up a story, I'm probably going to exclude my little nickname, but this, this is human, and John says, well, I'm, I'm the one, it was Peter, but also the one that Jesus loved. And Mary said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, if I'm going to make up a story, and if you're going to make up a story, especially in the first century, you should put multiple witnesses there. That's the best way to make up a story. It's more believable. And if you're going to make up a story in the first century, of course, you don't make it a woman that finds Jesus. A woman's testimony didn't have validity in the first century. And so if you're going to make up the story, John does a really bad job. If John, and John's smart. He knows if he's going to make up the story, he should probably put two or three, maybe even ten men to say that Jesus came back to life. There's actually no reason why you would put a woman finding Jesus at the tomb. Unless, unless that's actually what happened. And that's what John said, that a woman found him. And so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I'm starting to believe John because as a young man myself, or at least aspiring young man, if I'm writing the most important document of my life that's going to be read for millennia to come and that's going to change the course of human history, and I got to beat Peter in a foot race, I'm going to put it in there. (laughs) Guys, this is so authentic. I trust that John wrote this because this seems like human writing. If you're going to make up a story, leave the part about the foot race out. That seems like a petty detail unless unless it actually happened. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there and did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, the one who had reached the tomb first, just in case you forgot, also went inside. And then John says this. I mean, he's kind of led us to this moment, and he says, look, I got there first, and then Peter came. And I did not expect this coming, but I saw the linen, and then I started to remember some of the things that Jesus had told me before. And then I remembered that he said he was going to come back, but I thought he was talking about the temple in three days, but now I'm realizing. Then he says in verse 8, says that he walked in, John walked in. He saw and believed. This was not what John was expecting. This was not what John was looking for. John makes it clear. He had no idea that this was coming. And finally, John has an answer to the question he's been asking this whole time. Who is this man? And what does this 
mean for me? I love what Andy Stanley says. He says that nobody was expecting nobody. Nobody was expecting nobody in the tomb. Nobody was expecting to walk in and for that place to be empty. And John walked in and he starts to piece the things together. And it's almost like he looks at you, the reader, and says, so what do you think? What do you think? Who do you think that this man is? Uh, my, my trip to Israel was incredible, obviously. And it was so cool that I did get to go with Mary Hudson, Katy Perry's mom. And it was mostly a good thing, except for um, there was a moment that I realized I was getting a little bit distracted. Everywhere I went, um, I realized that I was cognizant of what Mary was doing. I was cognizant of where she was. And so I'm at, you know, I'm at a place called Masada, and it's this place that the Romans kind of hemmed in and, and forced the Jews to, to surrender. And I'm looking at live history as it's happening, and I'm leaning over saying, so what do we, what do we think of Orlando Bloom? Are we a fan, not a fan? I, and I, I felt myself torn everywhere I went, everywhere except one place. When I went to the garden tomb, that was different. We gathered there together, and I found myself completely present for what was happening. I found myself completely present, and, and we were taking communion over there, and, and it was amazing. And we sang a worship song together outside the tomb, and it was incredible. And, and then the moment that the trip really was building to, which was that we got to actually walk in the tomb. And the tomb is really just kind of a narrow slit into a, a, a wall that you got to walk into. And the whole trip had been building to this moment. And it's a narrow opening. You can't go in really two at a time. There was no more traveling with friends. There was no more like, we're going to do this together. This was a moment just for one person. And, um, and I went in, I, and I'd never done this before, and I'd heard about it. And I went in alone, and I don't know if I was doing it correctly or not, because when I walked in, I mean, this was everything that we were building towards. And I walked in, and I looked around, it, and I, I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything. You guys care if I preach for a second? See, everywhere else that we went in Israel, we were going to see something. When we went to Jerusalem, we went to see where the temple was. When we went to the Jordan, we went to see where he was baptized. When we went to Galilee, we looked at the sea. Nobody travels to go see nothing. You do the same thing when you're here in Cincinnati. When you go to Finley, you go to see the market. When you go to the banks, you go to see the river. When you go to the museum, you go to see the art. Nobody travels to go see nothing. And so I, I just want to give you a heads up. If you ever go to Israel, you should be aware. If you ever get to go into that tomb, I want you to temper your expectations. Don't get your hopes up because when you walk into that place, they're going to build it up a lot. And you're going to walk in and you're going to look around and you're not going to see nothing. Because it is empty. I walked into that place and I saw nothing. John walked into that place and he saw nothing. And because nothing is in the tomb, that has changed everything for me. Nobody was expecting nobody. And it's not that Martha never expected to see Lazarus again. It's not that John thought he'd never be reunited with Jesus again. It's that they didn't expect to see them now. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life now. He offers the fullness of life now. He gives us the fullness now. He's giving us salvation now. It's not just about something later, but he's giving us life now. And because I walked into the tomb and nothing was there, 
That has changed everything. See, I'm now not just living for death, but I'm dying to myself so that I can live. I'm not just trying to follow rules, but I'm actually now get to follow the one that rules and reigns. I'm not just trying to sin less, but I'm putting my faith in the one that's sinless. I'm not just trying to white-knuckle it until I can get up there. I'm pulling heaven back down to here. I'm not just trying to avoid hell. I'm letting him get the hell out of me. I'm not just trying to master a religion. I'm submitting to a king. I'm not just holding out for life then. I'm receiving his life now. I am not a disgrace because of what I have done. I am living into the fact that I am saved by grace through faith, and I'm not buying into you do you. I'm receiving. I'm pushing my chips in. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket that he did it all and all to him I owe because the tomb is empty we have hope for the next life but we do not just have hope for the next life it's not just about getting out of hell later it's about receiving the fullness of life now because the tomb is empty that's changed everything it's changed everything and the resurrection is not just an event that you celebrate it's a person that you worship It's not just an event that we celebrate, it's a person that we worship, and the resurrection is not just a story that is told in the Bible, it's the story of which all of human history is centered around, and that story, the story of the resurrection, is now intersecting with your story now, which begs the question, what do you think? Who do you think that this man is? What does the empty tomb mean for you? Who is this man? Uh, In church, one of the things that we love to do, we love to have kind of like an internal language. Uh, We love to speak in code. One of our favorite code words that we throw around all the time, and if you're new to church, you totally know we do this. Uh, One of our favorite words to throw around is gospel. Gospel. We want to preach the gospel. We love the gospel. We want to talk about the gospel. And and if you're new to church or if you're new to this or you haven't been around for a while, um, sometimes we say the word and we don't tell you what it is. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that there exists two contrasting kingdoms. This kingdom is a perfect kingdom. This kingdom is the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is is broken and we're stuck here. Now what we do in evangelicalism is we make this kingdom out to, to be all bad. This kingdom is not all bad. Otherwise we wouldn't choose it. There's some great things about this kingdom. Number one, the main thing is in this kingdom, I get to be king. I get to be king in this kingdom. Now, this kingdom, it's perfect, it's unbelievable, it's the kingdom of God. The problem with this kingdom, the reason I can't get there on my own, is because the price is perfection. You have to be perfect to get here, and that is exactly why Jesus came. He came to live a perfect life so that he could get us into that place. He came to live a perfect life and then die the death that each of us deserved to pay for our sin. And the resurrection is such a big deal because the resurrection proves that the payment was received in full. That's why Easter's such a big deal. Now, this is also a best-kept or a worst-kept secret in evangelicalism. Actually, did you know that Jesus invites all of us? He invites all of us into this kingdom. It doesn't matter your gender, your race, your economic status, your age. Everyone is invited into this kingdom. The catch is... It's not really a catch, but the catch is that the price of admission is submission, is submission to a king. Now, everybody wants this kingdom. 
and, uh, and you'll have to trust me, but I promise you, when you look at this kingdom, this utopia, everybody wants this, not just Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, spirituals, atheists. When you look at what the makeup of this kingdom is, everybody's like, I'm in for that. Because in this kingdom, love triumphs over everything. Um, forgiveness flows through the streets. There is no inequality. There is no oppression. This is what we're all longing for. This is what everybody is working towards, no matter what you believe. Everybody wants this kingdom. The problem is that you can't have the kingdom without the king. Can't have the kingdom without the king. And so everyone is invited in, but if you come to this kingdom, you have to give up your kingship. You have to take off your crown over here and submit to a new king, King Jesus, in this place. He must be king of the kingdom. He also must be king of you. But he invites you in. He's invited all of us in. The question is, are you willing to submit to this king? Do you want the kind of kingdom that he offers? Do you believe that his payment was sufficient? And are you willing to turn from your sin? We call that repentance. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to let somebody else be in charge of your life? Are you willing to live in a kingdom of which you are not the king? All Jesus asks is for him to be Lord and Savior. He wants to pay the price, but he pays the price of admission through submission to him. Years later, John was writing uh, another letter. He finished his biography. Now he's writing a letter to um, a bunch of Christians, and he says this at the end of the letter, but it's really applicable to no matter what you believe. He says, um, I write all these things. He's kind of summing up his thoughts. He says, I write all these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. He says that you can actually know that you have eternal life. Now, remember, eternal life is not just out there. Eternal life starts now. And I think that John would ask the same question again. What do you think? What do you think about the empty tomb? What do you think about what this means for your life? And if you've never submitted your life to Jesus, if you've never made that decision, today is the day of salvation. Today you can do that. And if you haven't done that in a long time, if it's been a while or you got confirmed as a kid or you grew up in the church, but it's been a while, today is the day to just say, oh, I want, I want in that kingdom. I want to be a part of that. There's no program you have to do, no class you have to, to take. It's all about getting into that kingdom. And so we're going to stand and we're going to worship. But I want, I want you to listen. If this is not you, if you're like, I'm not sure that I have that life, it is available for you today. The only thing that's asked is that you bow the knee. And here's what this is going to look like. There's going to be people available to pray for anybody up front, but specifically in the back, there's going to be a few people with purple lanyards. And if you need to make the decision today, then that's who I want you to go talk to. You can make the decision in your head, but actually there's, there needs to be some kind of moment where you're like, no, I'm, I'm putting this in front of somebody else. And so I want you to go to the back and um, no one's going to make you do anything you don't want to do. No one's going to ask you for money or anything like that. They're just going to say, hey, here's the next step of following Jesus. If you need to recommit your life to him, if you need to commit your life to the first time, if you need to bow the knee in submission, go to the back. And for the rest of us, the rest of us that are remembering that this is what we signed up for, this is what we bowed the knee to, we're going to celebrate. And we're not going to celebrate later. 
just later. We're going to celebrate now. We're going to party now. We're going to remember that Jesus is alive, and the worship team is going to lead us into remembering that the tomb is empty, and that has changed everything for everyone. So let's celebrate together as a church. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com give.